Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And this is Bob Siegel. So, you'd like to believe in God, but you keep hearing Christians call the Bible the Word of God, and you wonder, does the Bible really make this claim about itself, or is this just something the church came up with over the years? What does the Bible claim about the Bible? Does it actually claim to be the Word of God, or does it just claim to be literature or perhaps history in some places? Well, my friend, there are all kinds of ways to authenticate the Bible, both as the Word of God and as being historically accurate, from fulfilled prophecy to the corroboration from other ancient history to archaeology. And we've done a lot of that on this program, and we will do more. But today, I'm going to show you a shortcut, so to speak. Just recently, we spent several programs talking about the historical authentication for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to show you today is how quickly we can get from the resurrection to the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament. And here's the way it goes. If Jesus rose from the dead, and he did. You'll have to go to our other programs and look at other things I've written. I've done a whole book on this kind of stuff. For now, if Jesus rose from the dead and he did, then he is who he claims to be. And he claims to be God. And we've done a lot of programs showing the verses where he claims to be God too, but it's not just that. You see, only God can raise somebody from the dead. Only God has the power of life over death. If Jesus were claiming to be God or was just some nutcase false prophet, he wouldn't have risen from the dead. So the resurrection authenticates his words. That means everything Jesus taught was true. He taught that he was God. He taught a lot of things. Everything he taught was true and everything he believed is true. And one thing he did believe was that the Old Testament was the Word of God. Now, in those days, in Jesus' day, they weren't calling it the Old Testament because the Jews didn't believe there was going to be a New Testament. They referred to it as the Law and the Prophets, the Law referring to the first five books of the Bible. And they had other sections called the Prophets and the Writings. The Prophets included Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the the Standard Prophets, but also historical books such as Kings. Those were considered part of the Prophets. Samuel was considered part of the prophets. Joshua was considered part of the prophets. The writings were the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, things like that. But it got a little bit long to say the law and the prophets and the writings. So they usually just abbreviated by saying the law and the prophets. That was one designation. Another time they just used the phrase scripture. So Jesus believed that the scripture, the law and the prophets was the word of God. He talked as if he was assuming that. He talked as if everybody around him listening was assuming that. Matthew 5, 17 through 19, this is during the Sermon on the Mount, the very first recorded preaching of Jesus. Not recorded with a tape recorder, recorded in the sense that people listened and wrote it down. Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And again, that means the Bible, the Bible that they had up to then, the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to 
fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now here's another place, and I, I mentioned that they also use the word scripture referring to the Old Testament. John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. In context there, he's talking about something that they read and study in Scripture, and he's he's saying, this authenticates what I'm telling you because the Scripture is true. You can't break the Scripture. You can't part from Scripture. You can't challenge the Scripture. So Scripture is claiming that Scripture is true. Now, although these sweeping endorsements of the entire Bible should end the discussion, it may still be of interest to point out that Jesus specifically referred to some of the most disputed Old Testament narratives, the more fanciful so-called Old Testament stories. He talked about Adam and Eve, Mark chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's quoting there right out of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus is going back to Genesis to the first two human beings to talk about God's view of marriage. And Abel, the son, Matthew chapter 23, 35, Jesus said, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What about Jonah? Jonah and the giant sea monster. Now, there's a lot you can say about Jonah. It wasn't actually a whale. It wasn't necessarily even a fish. It uses some word that we're not sure, some kind of sea monster. But anyway, the point here. The only point I'm making right now is that Jesus talked about Jonah as if he really exists and as if that miraculous story actually happened. Matthew 12, 39 through 41, when people kept asking him to show a sign. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. By the way, a little sidebar, a lot of my skeptical friends like to point to this as a false prophecy of Jesus. Jesus is comparing the three days and three nights Jonah was in the sea monster with his own death and resurrection. However, if you look carefully, Jesus was crucified late Friday afternoon. He rose from the dead Sunday morning. The only day where he was in the grave for a whole day and night was Saturday morning through Saturday night, those 24 hours. You can't really get three literal days and nights out of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. However, it may interest you to know that in those days, to the ancient Jews, any one part of a day was described as a whole day. All Jesus would have had to have done was been in the grave one hour on Friday and one hour on Sunday, and they still would have called it a day and a night. Now, that seems stupid to us because we're living 2,000 years later in a completely different culture, but that's an irrelevant concern. If that would not have been considered a contradiction to the original culture Jesus spoke to, it is not a contradiction to us. But whatever your opinion of it, my only point right now is that Jesus talked about Jonah and the story of Jonah as if it really happened. And how about Noah? Yeah. 
you don't get much more doubt than over the story of Noah. Matthew 24, Jesus is comparing his second coming to the time of Noah. I'm reading from Matthew 24, starting with verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. How about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So make no mistake. Jesus believed in what we call the Old Testament. He made some sweeping statements about it. But even if somebody wanted to say, okay, well, maybe he accepted some of it. But boy, Jonah, Noah, Adam and Eve, he even went out of his way to talk about some of those very specific so-called fairy tale stories. And when he talked about them, he was not referring to them as fairy tales, but historical events. So much for the Old Testament. Jesus also commissioned apostles, people who had followed him, who had been his disciples. And these men wrote the New Testament, John 20, 21 through 23. This is the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, why is he telling his apostles that they can forgive sin? Only God forgives sin. Well, he's referring here to the gospel. We understand this elaboration when we read the book of Acts and we see the kind of relationship that the apostles had with others, the kind of message they had. They were eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. They had a special relationship with Jesus's Holy Spirit. Anybody who becomes a Christian receives the Holy Spirit. But in their specific case, the Holy Spirit is bringing back to their memory the things that Jesus said, taught, did. In those days, they did not have a written New Testament. They had walking New Testaments. The apostles were the authority of the church. After the apostles died, the church preserved their words. So on the basis of Jesus' apostles, his life is being authenticated, and they were given a special authority from the Holy Spirit that's very likened to the kind of authority that the prophets and scribes of old had, and this is how we authenticate the New Testament. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Not everybody who wrote in the New Testament was one of the apostles. Paul, for example, was not one of the original disciples who followed Jesus. That's true. Paul called himself the apostle untimely born. Paul had his own encounter with the resurrected Jesus quite some time afterwards. However, nobody's going to doubt the authority of Peter. I'm not even getting into the Catholic Church and their theology about the Pope and the Vicar of Christ and spiritual descendants of Peter. But whether you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant, nobody's going to deny that one of those 12 disciples was Peter. And of the three disciples that Jesus spent the most time with, Peter was one of them, the other two being James and John. And Peter, based on his authority, authenticates Paul. I'm reading a letter written by Peter very late in his life. This is shortly before Peter's 
going to his martyrdom. 2 Peter 3, 15-16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, isn't it interesting how casually and clearly and matter-of-factly Peter is equating the letters of Paul with scripture? And again, scripture in those days meant the Bible. They're twisting his words as they do the other scripture. So now Paul is part of this authentication of apostles that came from Jesus. And Paul, like Jesus, authenticates the entire Old Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he gives a very sweeping statement, starting with verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul, like Jesus, authenticates the Garden of Eden story, only in his case, he talks about Adam by name. Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. So it is written, The first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Jesus, among many, many different titles in the New Testament, is called the second Adam, or in this case, the last Adam. Adam. 1 Timothy 2, 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul is talking about this as if it were a historical event that really happened, not only happened, but affected the way we are. You look at some of those previous verses, he's saying we have our sin nature as a result of the fact that we are descended from Adam and Eve and their fall into sin. Now, there were a couple of other people that wrote the New Testament that were not actually apostles, at least originally not. One of them was Jude, but Jude was the brother of Jesus, the physical brother of Jesus. I know Jesus was born of a virgin, but after he was born, his mother Mary did have sexual relationships with her husband Joseph, and Jesus had brothers and sisters. One of them was Jude. James was another one. There's others that aren't even listed by name. But in Jude chapter 14, Jude says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. So he's referring to Adam as if he really existed. And back to Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples. He authenticates Noah, just as Jesus talked about Noah. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, talks about Noah. 1 Peter chapter 3, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And in in 2 Peter chapter 2, he also refers to Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, etc., etc. But the point is, he's referring to the incident of Noah and the flood. My friends, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Now, simply because the Bible makes that claim, that doesn't automatically mean it is. We do have to bring in other disciplines. But I 
frequently, and you'd be surprised how often I hear people say, even the Bible doesn't claim to be the Word of God. It most certainly does. From Jesus to his disciples, the Bible makes the claim that it is the Word of God. It is up to you to go out and test and challenge that claim, because if it is the Word of God, you should be lining up your life with the Word of God. And that begins with Jesus Christ, who paid for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead three days later, authenticating everything he taught, everything he believed. He believed the Old Testament was the Word of God, and he commissioned his apostles who wrote the New Testament. They wrote most of it, or people who knew them wrote it, one of them being Paul, who was authenticated by Peter as an authority likened to the authority of those who wrote the other scriptures. This is Bob Siegel making the obvious obvious. The Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.